So now I have the pleasure of reading our scripture reading from Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's verses 1 through 12, and that can be found on page 177 in your pew Bible. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb, and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks, Mickey. Thank you, Carrie Lynn for reading uh, God's Word for us this morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and uh, as John mentioned, I've been on sabbatical, and this is actually my second Sunday back, and so if I haven't met you yet, if, if you're newer, I'd love to meet you. For all of those that, uh, you that I do know, I'm so glad to be back, and it's been so good to catch up with, with many of you last Sunday and, and more of you uh, this Sunday, so it's, it's great to be back. And just Thank you um, both to our, our other pastors, our elders, and you as a congregation for giving me uh, the time away and for the refreshment and, uh, and learning and sharpening. I was just saying to someone earlier this morning, I feel like I've already uh, am reaping benefits uh, of the equipping and sharpening and resting uh, that have taken place even just in this first week back. So thank you so much, and uh, it's truly a gift. Um, to have had that time, and I'm, yet I'm so glad uh, to be back with you uh, this morning and have missed you greatly. Um, and before we take a look at this passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34, um, this is the last message in our series in the life of Moses, I'd love to just pause and pray and ask God to help us uh, to understand his word, um, that it wouldn't just be uh, merely words that we hear, but words that truly uh, transform us through his spirit. So let's pray and ask for that now. Father in heaven, we know uh, that you have sent your son the true and living word, um, which all of your written word ultimately points to. And we pray that this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make that word truly living and active, um, that it would convict and comfort, um, that it would challenge and affirm, um, that it would speak life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last May, I was listening to the radio, and I heard an interview with New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast, 
And in that interview, uh, she was discussing a new graphic memoir that she had produced. It's about the, the death and aging of her parents. And the interview immediately captured my attention and has stayed with me, not only because of her humor in dealing with a, a very difficult topic, but also her insight into the human condition. And, and the book that she wrote is titled, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? And I'm sure many of us have had that question cross our minds when a topic, uh, the topic of a conversation has turned to death, especially if it's with friends or family members. But for Raza's aging parents, death and dying, talking about those things, were against their fundamental principles. <laughs> she says that they were practitioners of denial. If you don't ever think about death, it won't happen. And in fact, her parents didn't even have a will until they were 93 years old. That's how much they were in denial about this coming. And, and I actually want to share just a page of this memoir with you. Uh, she writes, I'll read this for you. You can see in the cartoon there. She says, two things about my childhood. One, I was an only child. And two, my parents were a lot older than the other kids' parents. Your mom is old. She's like a zillion. Your dad's old too. That means they're going to die soon. And even when they really were a zillion, they and I never talked about, a about the future. We're going to 100. Don't strain your voice, Elizabeth. Why tempt fate? What's this? The chasts are talking about me? Why, I'll show them. And while we may not be as extreme as Roz's mom and dad... We are all, to a certain extent, practitioners of denial when it comes to death. But we know that it is the one certainty in every one of our stories. And yet we need constant reminders of death because we so often forget. In our cultural context, death is so often hidden from us. I mean, sure, we, we hear about it on the news or in someone else's family, now, I know as I say that, for many of you, you've experienced death up close and personal too often. But for many of us, especially if we're younger, death is something we rarely experience up close. And so we forget. Now, at this point, you may already be thinking, Bill, really, your first Sunday back, can't you talk about something more pleasant? But the Bible takes us there this morning. It is a book that speaks to all of life, and, and it doesn't shrink from talking about the reality of death that every single one of us faces. And so as we come to our final message in the Moses series, we are confronted by death, death in the story of Moses. And there's a lot to be learned in the story. This is a major pivot point in the Bible. This is the ending of the Torah. It's the ending of a section of Scripture. God's doing new things. He's bringing a leader in. In many ways, this, this chapter, it's a transition. It's a summary. And the ongoing story that God is writing about the deliverance of his people. But it's the end of the story, in a sense, for Moses. But it's not the end of the story. And what we're going to see today is that our end is not the end. That our end is not the end. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that our failure is not the end of the story, that our life is not the end of the story, and that our death is not the end of the story. So our failure is not the end of the story, our life is not the end of the story, 
and then our death is not the end of the story. What we see first as we look at the story in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy is that our, our failure is not the end of the story. If you have one of the Pew Bibles or you have it pulled up on your phone, look again at Deuteronomy chapter 34 with me. It says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pishka, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev, the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And at this point in the story, Moses is getting old. And if you read back a few of the early chapters of Deuteronomy that are right before this, he's just passed off leadership to his successor, Joshua. And now God tells him, go climb Mount Nebo. And after what I'm sure was a very long climb for a 120-year-old, Moses reaches the top and he sees the view that was just described in those first three verses. And actually, I have a slide, a picture of the top of Mount Nebo today. And this is the view that Moses would have had or something like it. And then we read in verse 4, And the Lord said to him, This is the land to which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Those are the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. He says I, that he swore to them, I will give to your offspring. And then this is what God says to Moses. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So wait, what, what's going on here? What's happening? I, this is not the way that we expect Moses' story to end, especially not after last week, right? I mean, after Moses leads the people across the Red Sea, they're on their way to the promised land. This has been the mission that God has had for Moses from the time that he's pulled out of the Nile River as a baby and taken into the house of Pharaoh. He's been preparing Moses to deliver God's people and lead them into the promised land. And now after wandering in the desert for 40 years, Moses and a new generation of Israelites, they're poised to enter the land. They're right there on the edge. So why? Why can't Moses go in? What happened? And this doesn't seem fair. To find the answer to that question, we have to look back to the book of Numbers, which is the, numbers, the book that comes right before Deuteronomy. And we find the answer in Numbers chapter 20. And if, if you've never read Numbers chapter 20, or if it's been a really long time, I'd encourage you this week, take, take a minute, use the table of contents of your Bible, find Numbers, and read Numbers chapter 20. It's, it's quite a story. But, but briefly, here's what happens. Moses fails big time. The people are in the wilderness, and they end up in a place where there's no water to drink, a dead end. If you remember last week, the dead end was too much water. They were pressed up against the Red Sea. This time, it's that there's not enough water. There's too little water. And the people grumble and rebel, and they say again, like they said last week, Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt just so we can die? Like, what gives, Moses? And in the face of an angry, 
thirsty mob. Moses withdraws, and the Lord, Yahweh, and, and Yahweh is God's proper name. Whenever you see in your Bible the word Lord written with, with small caps, all capital letters, it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's God's name. And Yahweh speaks to Moses. God speaks to Moses, and he says, take the staff. This is the same staff that he held out over the Red Sea. And assemble the congregation, and you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock. There was a big rock near where they were gathered. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so you shall bring out water from the rock and give them to drink the congregation and the cattle. So, so far, so good. It's what happens next that is the failure that will keep Moses from entering the land. So here's what happens next. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So everyone's there in front of the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out for you from this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. Again, water's coming out. What's going on here? Keep reading. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So what happened there? Well, it's true that Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to him. He, he does disobey God. But first and foremost, it isn't that disobedience of the instructions, I don't think, that's the biggest problem. No, I think what really underlies, what's at the heart of why God forbids Moses from entering the land in this moment, what happened that's so serious there, is that Moses takes credit what God has done. He makes God's work out to be his own. Notice what Moses shouts to the people when he angrily strikes the rock. He says, here, rock, he says, here now you rebels, shall we, shall Aaron and I, shall we bring water for you? Not here is God's incredibly gracious provision for you from him, but rather listen, you scum, I'll give you water, and, and you kind of almost think, you kind of hear Moses saying, and, and I kind of hope you choke on it a little bit. Moses plagiarizes God's work. He hands it in as his own. He robs God of glory. And this is actually the heart of all sin, not just Moses' sin, but it's the sin that underlies so much of, of all of our sin. Now, when you hear the word sin, many of us immediately think of sort of self-righteousness and stuffy religiosity and kind of a war on pleasure, right? David Brooks, uh, New York Times columnist, author, I think he captures this so well in his book, Road to Character. It's an excellent book. He says, in many times, in many places, the word sin was used to declare war on pleasure, even on the healthy pleasures of sex and entertainment. Sin was used as a pretext to live joylessly and sensuously. But in truth, sin like vocation and soul is one of those words that's impossible to do without. 
what we see when we look at the Bible is that sin is really first and foremost something we are, something, an orientation that we have within our hearts rather than an action or a set of rules that we break. It is that, but first and foremost, it's, it's an attitude. It's, it's something about who we are, and we all plagiarize God. We all fail to give God credit for everything and instead put ourselves at the center, taking credit instead. I mean, maybe you're really successful at work. Maybe you boast about your performance in class or on the athletic field. But where did those abilities come from? Who made you hardworking? Who made you smart? Who made you fast? And for Moses, this particularly blatant and brash instance of God's glory being plagiarized, it bars him from entering the land. And so when we arrive here in Deuteronomy chapter 34, at the end of Moses' life, he doesn't get to go in. If it's hard, he, he sees the whole thing, and God says, but you can't go in, Moses. And, and there's a warning here for us in this, that our sin, it actually has consequences, sometimes real and lasting consequences in our life. You and I are never so mature. I mean, this was Moses, a guy who's seen God face to face and took the Ten Commandments and, and handed them down to the people of Israel who'd seen God in the burning bush. If anyone's mature, I mean, Moses, I mean, he knows God. None of us are so immature that we are over being tempted, that we're over risking falling and failure. So there's a warning here for us. We, we can't get lazy our choices matter. They can really cut us off from good things. God is not mocked. We do reap what we sow. But there's also a promise here. There's a promise, it's an assurance that, that God uses messy, broken people to do His work. It's a huge point in, in Moses' story that he's messy, Israel's messy, you and I are, and yet God uses us. And, and there's a freedom in knowing that we aren't perfect, but we serve a God who is and who is redeeming us, informing us that, that he's doing something amazing in our midst, sometimes despite us. And I think Moses got that. He understood that. Do we? You see, Moses failed massively, but he still finished well. I mean, he didn't abandon God or God's people. I mean, it would hard, be hard to blame Moses if he did. If back in Numbers chapter 20, God tells him, look, Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land because of this. If he just said, all right, fine, God, then I'm out of here. You take care of these people. I'm done. But he doesn't. He presses on. He continues to obey and trust God. His failure wasn't the end of the story. It's not the end of ours either. Our end is not the end. Which means that dying well, ending well, means, not, means pressing on, not giving up. 
And some of you are here this morning, and you're thinking, I don't even know why I bother to come to church. I don't even know why I bothered to come this morning. I've made so many mistakes. Bill, if you only knew. I've failed so many times. I've sinned far too much to end well. If that's where you're at this morning, I'd just say you don't give up. Press on, because our failure, your failure, is not the end of the story. It's not about being perfect, but it's about knowing how imperfect you really are, owning that all the while while continuing to grow in love for and obedience to God. This is the key to both living and dying well. Every one of us lives a life that has been defaced by failure. But you can still finish well. You can still finish well. The Apostle Paul Another person in the story of the Bible who failed massively in his life. Um, If you don't know Paul's story, uh, before he came to know Jesus, he was actively trying to imprison and kill Christians. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3, a letter he wrote. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made perfection my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Your failure is not the end of the story. But second, our life is not the end of the story either. And what I mean by that is we don't live forever. The end of each one of our stories is is death, not life. Our story, like Moses' story, will include a chapter about our death. Look again at Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died, and I love this, and his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days, and then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. There's a classic episode of The Simpsons where Homer thinks that he's eaten poisoned sushi. And he believes he's going to die. And there's a great moment in that episode. As the doctor tells him he has less than a day to live, the doctor hands Homer this pamphlet. It says, so you're going to die. And Moses kind of has that moment with God. As he's going to climb this mountain, Moses knew he wasn't going to be coming back. He was going to die. In fact, I wonder if part of the reason it took Israel so long and all those wanderings in the desert was that Moses kept taking the long way because he knew with each step closer to the promised land brought him closer to this climb to the mountain and his last day. But Moses climbs the mountain. He looks out, he sees the land. 
and then he dies. His life was not the end of the story. I mean, it's true. All throughout Moses' life, he has been the main instrument God has used throughout the book of Exodus, all through the story. But when he dies, the story moves on after just one paragraph. They mourn for 30 days, and then they moved on. And, And Moses was okay with this. And this is the biblical pattern. We die, and God moves on. He continues his work. Of course, he's with us in our death, but from a cosmic standpoint, He's going to get done what he needs to get done. None of us is irreplaceable. None of us is indispensable. When General Dwight Eisenhower was working as a staff officer in the army, he started carrying around a a poem. The source is anonymous, but he carried this little poem around in his jacket. And it went like this. Take a bucket, fill it with water. Put your hand in clear up to the wrist. Pull it out, the hole that remains is a measure of how much you'll be missed. The moral of this quaint example, to be just the best you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there is no indispensable man. None of us bear the title of indispensable man. If Moses didn't, then certainly you and I don't. And actually, sabbatical was a really good tangible reminder of that to me, because you're all still here, and everything's working fine, and I had nothing to do with that. But we can bear Moses' title. There are lots of epithets Moses could have had, lots of titles, leader of Israel, prophet of God, but here's what he gets. Moses, servant of the Lord. God's story has many more chapters without you and me. God's plan doesn't revolve around us. And dying well acknowledges that the story we're in, the work that we do, the calling we have felt is much larger than us. It doesn't end with our life. Which means that ending well, it means that dying well means numbering our days. Moses composed a number of psalms and songs and poetry. Some of them are recorded in the book of Exodus and other places, but we have one of his songs in Psalms, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90. And Moses wrote these words. He says, For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? So he says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. To live a good and wise life, you have to know that your death is inevitable. And that's why this reminder is all over the Bible in many different ways. It's said in lots of different ways, but the message is clear over and over again. Teach us to number our days. Know that you have a day coming that's marked out for your death. God ordains, He plans, He schedules the time and place of your death. 
we've all got a number over our heads. And if you're a Christian this morning, this should actually be a great comfort to you. Because this means that God has not left anything to chance or to fate in your life. Or in your death. He is providing for you, caring for you, even down to the moment of your death. Modern society works incredibly hard to convince us that if we just have enough money and the right technology, that our days can be innumerable. One theologian applied this metaphor. He says, the modern day equivalent of the cathedral is the hospital. The white-robed doctor has replaced the priest as the mediator of salvation. Instead of bread and wine, the new sacrament is drugs and pills. And drugs is our hope and salvation. Death is still the enemy, but the new Savior is technology. Ernst Becker's famous book, The Denial of Death, which is mentioned in that classic Woody Allen film, Annie Hall, argues that the denial of death is the mainspring of all human activity. Our work, our purpose, Becker says, is namely to die the inevitability of death. If you've seen Annie Hall, you know that wasn't Woody Allen's problem, or it probably isn't Woody's problem in life generally. But the key to a good life and a good death is not pursuing technological or medical immortality. It's not in the denial of death. Rather, it's in embracing the time that God has given us. But this means leaving some of our biggest goals unfinished. I mean, look at Moses' life. He did so much, but his biggest goal, the thing that he had been striving for, entering the promised land, he left that unfinished. Joshua got that one done. This means that you must be actively investing in the generation behind you because it's about the mission. It's not about you or about me. Your days, my days, they are numbered. We are not going to accomplish it all. As your pastor, one of my primary roles is to prepare you to die well so that you're prepared for death when it comes. And and not just prepared in the big categories of embracing the gospel and following Jesus, because those are the massively important things for all life. But also what those big realities mean for the details of end of life, like wills and living wills and medical directives. And obviously those things necessarily involve legal and medical fields and professionals, but our Christian faith speaks into those things also. Ending well means numbering our days. Because our life is not the end of the story. But we also have a great hope. And that hope is this, that our death is not the end of the story either. Even though God knows Moses is irreplaceable and so are we, excuse me, are replaceable and so are we when it comes to his mission in the world, Moses was not replaceable as a friend of God. Because you can actually read Deuteronomy 34 as a really sad story. You could be sitting here thinking, Bill, 
you keep saying that kind of, or implying at least, that, that Moses died well. But when I look at this passage, I mean, I don't know if this looks like a good death. He dies alone on top of a mountain. Nobody even found his body. He had no friends or family there at the end with him. No gravesite, no ceremony. And, he, and he's buried in Moab. All the other leaders are buried in the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joseph who, who died in Egypt. Remember, they brought his bones out. Even Joseph is buried in the promised land. Not Moses. He's buried in Moab. But Moses didn't seem to mind. And the language here about Moses is touching. God was with him in his final moments. This 120-year-old man climbing a mountain, one last mountain with his best friend, with his master, with his Lord. And there's an intimacy here, a closeness. And we find it in the little phrase, Moses died according to the word of God. That expression, the word of God, it's literally, it's a different than sometimes the word of God is translated. It's a different expression here. It's It's literally the mouth of God or the kiss of God. See, God's mouth breathes the breath of life into us. And his mouth receives our final breath at our death. He's near to us right to the very end, even in the moment of our death. A Christian never dies alone, ever. And then God buries Moses. God himself lovingly places Moses' body in the ground. And we don't know exactly why God does this, why he's, God buries him, and, and no one knows exactly where he's buried. Um, but many have suggested that it's so his grave wouldn't kind of become this means of trying to use pagan practices to contact Moses and get his wisdom from beyond the grave. But we know, whatever reason, God himself buries Moses. And our death is not the end of the story. Because for Christians, death is actually the beginning of life. God knows the story isn't over, and you get a hint of it here. At the end of the chapter, it says, there was never a prophet like Moses again until Jesus. Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he promised a prophet. He promised that God would raise up a new prophet, a better prophet, who wouldn't just speak God's words, but who would actually be God's word. Who wouldn't just lead God's people out of their slavery to the nation of Egypt, but who would deliver them from the ultimate slavery of sin and death. You see, we need a better prophet, a better mediator, one who not only dies, but dies for us, one who defeats death, one who left the promised land, goes and dies outside of it so that we can enter in and experience rest and life and joy in his presence. Because you see, we, all of us, just like Moses, we die in Moab. We don't die in the promised land. 
We die in the wilderness of a broken world marred with suffering and hardship and loss and fear. And you know what? None of us will die perfectly. We will all have regrets, unfulfilled dreams, projects we didn't get to. But friends, we have a Savior who completed all the work His Father gave Him to do, who lived and died without a single regret, who forgave those who killed Him and was faithful to His final breath. And through faith in Jesus, your imperfect death, my imperfect death, can be caught up in His perfect death and redeemed so that His perfect death becomes ours and His never-ending life becomes yours. The first question of the New City Catechism is this, and this question and answer, it's, it's the anchor of my life. It's the hope in my death. It goes like this. What is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so grateful that that is true. That our only hope in life and in death is not our work, not our accomplishment, not anything that we have done, but the simple fact that we belong to you in Jesus. And his death and his life have become ours so that death is not the end of the story. In Jesus' name, amen.